we come from different backgrounds and different narratives. So we try to create this new narrative, if you wish, a new situation where narratives are legitimized and humanized. It's not about us, really, it's about the homeland and the people here and the kids that grew up in this land. People ask us, what did you achieve? I think when I look back, I feel proud that we mm. are able to mobilize thousands of people. It's a model of hope for people when they see this cooperation happening. The idea of us or them is the best and it's not realistic. Our goal is really to create freedom and dignity for everyone. We try to mobilize people to meet each other and also to oppose the unjust system in the place here, basically. I have to say in the deeper sense, this is in the soul, in the core, it's really to shift the consciousness here for the common good of both people that lives here. I'm Nina Friedman, and this is Wearing. Wearing explores where we are. It is dedicated to those who believe in the inherent right of belonging and all the ways we feel we belong and connect to ourselves, to each other, and the spaces that hold the stories where all of this comes alive, where each experience of belonging is a work of art created by chance or by design. Dare I ask, is belonging where you are not what matters most? Wearing is the spatial story. Welcome. Suleiman Khatib grew up in a small Palestinian village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. At the age of 14, he and his friend received long jail sentences for stabbing and injuring two Israeli soldiers. In the jail library, he studied the history of the Jewish people and began to understand that there were equally compelling narratives to both sides. He also learned the effects of nonviolence through hunger strikes. On his release from jail, he dedicated himself to peace and reconciliation work. In 2005, he co-founded the Combatants for Peace, an organization created by Palestinian and Israeli former fighters and victims of violence. Combatants for Peace is modeled on humanistic values of empathy, forgiveness, and mutual respect for a future of peace on the homeland that both Palestinians and Israelis love, fighting not each other, but the common enemy of hatred and fear. He has been nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize. A recent documentary called Disturbing the Peace features Suleiman, as well as six other combatants for peace in their personal transformations from violence to nonviolence. The film has won awards across the world. Suleiman's story is also now told in the book, In This Place Together, written with the help of Jewish-American writer-editor Penina Alberg-Schwartz, who he originally met at the home of her mother, Rabbi Amy Alberg. I am honored to share my conversation with this very special person. The background music that you will hear is Suleiman playing the flute against the echo of the desert mountains. Suli, welcome. Thanks, Amina, for having me here, really. It's an honor. It's my pleasure. Do you want me to call you Suli or Suleiman? Either. You can also go in between. Where are you feeling? <laughs> okay. Where are you right now? Ramallah. That's where I live. Ramallah. So I want to start at the beginning. I've read about and also listened to you talk about Hizma, 
the village where you grew up. And yeah. when I was reading, I could feel the warmth that you describe with this very, very beautiful connection with the land. It was a whole world into itself that you really understood. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to describe this place of your childhood and that mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nina. Yeah, this subject is dear to my heart, so I'm really glad you're touching this subject, belonging. It's very deep question. I believe this question is central in our life. Little village is basically a smaller community. Everybody knows everybody, and people are connected in different ways as families, neighbors. Also to mention, I come from the tribal system. Mm-hmm. Not individual, it's a common community type of life. So basically, you are part of this mosaic. And in the wider context, I would say back in the days, it would be even included the whole mosaic of the environment, the nature, agriculture, animals. I would say in my generation, I'm 50 years old and it's changing, obviously. You know, in the family, the sheep that they own is part of the family. That's how I grew up. The water also, because the limited resources, how people in that time, in this community, in the countryside of Jerusalem, let's say, in that village, treated water and the land and the sand and the stones and everything. So there is really a whole life around it. Of course, when I was a child, I didn't understand this intellectually, obviously. And it's not even an intellectual conversation about this. It's more like a feeling and spirit. I feel like my connection to that place and to the folklore and inherited tradition and to the ancient wisdom that carries through our moms and ancestors, it's going through you without understanding it intellectually. People used mm. to be very connected to the land, to the nature. For example, they have to predict by natural ways when it's gonna be raining or they have names for different faces of the moon different faces of the sun my aunt she's 90 years old she actually still knows this and i'm always surprised how she would know that the moon tonight will come for example late not early so this is really ancient wisdom i don't know it well like for my generation it brings a lot of connection and for example olive harvest season would be a whole celebration of the families, a bunch of families, seven families will make a schedule to work together. So they started with one family and then go to the next family and so on. It's a community work. It was never individual work. There was a lot of exchange. Some families have more olive trees. They will give to the one that don't have olive oil or olives and they will get in return some, I don't know, they have chicken or eggs or some other needs. Basically what some communities are trying to do around the world now, this exists here, it's not strange. And it was developed naturally, definitely changed a lot now. But I feel very connected to this. I traveled a lot, I became more international and modern, I live in a city. But still I play the flute and it reminds me of my childhood and the songs that our moms and the elder women, they will sing and their men and the, the celebration. Things change, obviously, but this really goes to every aspect of the cultural, economical, social life. All the family mm -hmm. rituals and the rituals of the land. Yeah. And I would say I come from a Muslim family. Are you religious or no, practicing? I'm, I'm not practicing religion. I'm more spiritual, I would say, connected to the land. But in my mom's generation, religion is more connected to the nature. She fasted through the year, a lot of days and nights, connected to the moon, different practicing that's not necessarily Islamic or 
Judaism or Christianity. I believe it's really Abrahamic practices that come from indigenous culture here. That goes the same to the dresses, what we call tatris, broderie. Every area used to have their own colors and drawing with the dress handmade. My mom still have one. It's called the Mountain of Jerusalem. You mean the designs? The designs, and the same goes for many other things. So there is a rich cultural heritage here, to say. And I'm not talking about this in relation even to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, and I love this phrase, tribal mosaic. And what strikes me also is that no one is really alone, ever. No, obviously, group living, it has its own challenges. Here, you don't have even opportunity to be alone or lonely. Like my mom and her grandchildren live around there, so she doesn't really have her own time alone. And there is no homeless here. This is not because people have a lot of money, rather there is a lot of care and medicine and community life, and with some problems like everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and that sense of care, also for the elderly, people are watching over them, which is a big problem in other cultures at the moment. Yeah, in the whole West Bank, you might find two elderly houses or three. I don't remember exactly in the cities maybe, but in the villages, it doesn't exist. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So Hizma is separated from Jerusalem by the wall. Mm -hmm. Am I right to say that it's on one side and then on the other side, the settlements? So Hizma is really located seven kilometers, like 10 minutes drive from the center of Jerusalem. And now it's separated by a big settlement built on the road between Hizma and Jerusalem and the separation wall and the checkpoint, which we are not allowed to use. But it's basically cut from the historical tie to the city. Historically, Hizma and the surrounding belongs to the Jerusalem district. And some of the land that was separated by the wall, which my family owns inside the Jerusalem side, which we don't have access to anymore. Some of it has agriculture, uh, olive trees. The army would give a permit once a year. You can't go take care of the trees through the year just to pick the olives, which basically the trees will give you, but you have to take care of them, so it will die. I was um, reading in this beautiful book called In This Place Together, where you describe how your mother used to take care of and clean the trees. Yeah. Yeah, my mom from that generation really connected to the trees and to the land deeply. My mom physically born there, her family during the British time used to work on that water resources because the British had taken water from there to Jerusalem. You can see that actually up till now. So we're very connected. This water for us is sacred. Unfortunately, now it's really changed. There are a lot of settlements around. There is sewage system that's going through there. It's not even clean, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. Lately, I was there, I asked the Israelis guard there, who's the sewage coming here? He said, the truth is, it's from both sides. And this is really sad because we both claim belonging to the land and we're not treating the land in a healthy way. Wow, interesting. Can you visit or live in Hizma now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I go to my family often, stints now. First of all, it's tripled, like it's maybe 10,000 people now. Living there, a lot of Jerusalemite because they have a lot of housing problems inside Jerusalem. The one with the Israeli uh, identity, Blue ID, many of them bought or uh, rent apartments in Hizma. So it turned it into higher buildings. It's not the village in my mind. In my memory, this old village, old houses, Jerusalem stones, 
beautiful, every house with a garden. And that used to be really beautiful architecture. It's like the old Jerusalem houses. Not anymore. People use this modern higher buildings. And the big reason for that is because we're divided into area A, area B, area C. So where I live in Ramallah is area A, which is under Palestinian control. And the towns around cities, within the town, it's area B, where is it controlled administration, Palestinian-wise. Security-wise, it's under Israeli control. Outside of the village or the town, the land, it's called Area C, which is fully Israeli control, which means the planning zone is not expanding with the expanding of the population. So the village, obviously, it's the same since 1990. It didn't really expand just a little bit, which means people build on the top of their houses or new houses. So I'm shocked when I go there. I feel I'm in Manhattan of the village. I used to stand in the roof of my family house. I would see Jerusalem. Almost I can see Ramallah, the Dead Sea, and Amman in Jordan. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a mountain. So yeah, but now oh, because of these houses, it changed. Mm. And changed the lifestyle, obviously, and traffic. Yeah. I'm thinking how the word, the view, is a symbol. The view is closed. Yes, of course, it's really changed. You can see Jerusalem from the village, but you can't be there. Like it's another continent. Like my family land, you can see it from the kitchen of my family from the window. My mom has a lot of memories there. She told me many times, I can't look there. Yeah, it's very harsh. Yeah, you can see over the wall. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to visualize what you're talking about. Does your mom go there once a year only? Yeah, yeah. These days, they give them permits. This, you know, it used to be celebration. The families go there. They take the kids there to learn from their childhood to follow the tradition, they take care of the trees, a lot of seasonal food, a lot of songs, stories passing from generation to generation. Many of our families trying to keep uh, the ritual and the tradition. Yeah, it does seem like this physical wall has interrupted so many rituals. Definitely. Yeah, it's connection, not just with physical land, there's a very deep understanding and way of celebration and reverence mm. with the land because the yeah. land is cut. It's even cut in your own yeah. village because everything yeah. is now high rise. So this land disappeared from under your feet. Yeah. This is Nina Friedman. I am speaking with Suleiman Khatib, the co-founder of Combatants for Peace, an organization of Palestinians and Israelis working together for a future of hope on the sacred land they love. This is a story of unexpected transformations which model that possibility. So, Sully, at a certain point when you were still quite young, when you mm. were 14, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to this part of your story. Yeah. Uh, you became interested in the conversations around you about revolution mm. and liberation, Fatah and the PLO, mm-hmm. Palestine Liberation Organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By this point, you had already witnessed a lot of violence in the village and also with your family, yeah. to your family, and you made a choice. Perhaps you felt you had no real choice at the time to fight, to fight for rights, for the land, for freedom. Yeah. It began with throwing stones and yeah. graffiti. Then ultimately, you attacked and stabbed two Israeli soldiers and yeah. were arrested, and you were put in prison for 15 years. And later, I 
think released after maybe 10 years. years. Yeah. Yeah. Completely life changing mm-hmm. yeah. experience. And while you were in prison, you experienced a huge transformation and a different choice. Yeah. Can you explain this transformation? What happened when you were in prison? Yeah. So in my childhood, I would say this I was more active than the typical mainstream students in my school, which was under Israeli control, actually, the school system. My brother was in jail. I used to visit him. So I become like really active and connected to mm-hmm. the activist scene, revolutionary music, because I play the flute. I used to have secret political magazines that was hidden. So I got connected emotionally and also intellectually to the cause. My father used to work in Jerusalem, walk Hebrew fluently, has Israeli friends, just to say. And I personally used to play football with Jewish kids also, like my team from Neve Yaakov neighborhood, which is close to my village. And before the wall, I used to meet some of these kids. But during this activist time, let's say resistance, whatever we call in our narrative, yeah, I felt like I don't want to be part of the system and the mainstream life just to study and then to have whatever houses and money and this and that. That was not attractive to me, to be honest. So I started to do activism as much as I could at the time. When I was 14, the only choice without thinking was what we call in our narrative armed struggle or violence. And that's how I thought I would serve better the cause as a good guy of the land, uh, which means, you know, I try to do everything. I used to have a kofia. I was the leader of the kids. So this was also, to be super honest, giving me a lot of adrenaline, you know, like facing this big Israeli army with small tools and knowing secrets. I used to connect with the elders. So it was exciting. Yeah, yeah, and fear, obviously, and yeah. all of that. Yeah, it's a mix of million feelings. Nothing stopped me, actually. Uh, and also the feeling like I'm one of the good guys that's protecting the land and the cause. I was attracted to militarization and arms struggle at the time. Like, you weren't uh, afraid? No, I mean, some moments, obviously, and I have to be secretive with my family also. <laughs> Because they don't want you to go to jail. Yeah, the end, one guy from my village, his family house was demolished. He was 17 and a half. He joined me to attack and stab two Israelis in order to take their women. That was the intention. They were slightly wounded. And there was a big story in the news and the television. And they draw us in the television. They did the curfew. They checked the village and we escaped for a few days. After a few days, we were arrested. So I was at this point 14 and five months. In jail, going back and forth to the court, it's a military court. So just to say from a legal point, this is not the normal Israeli system. This is a military system. It doesn't really matter so much. I became 15. They sentenced me to 15 years. And my friend became 18. He was sentenced 18. They give one year per age? 15 and he got 18. 18. I played the Palestinian hero at the time that's not scared from the system, the occupation, as much as I could. And yeah, I lived with teenagers until I became 17 and a half. Then they transferred me to adult jail. They take you from jail to jail. So in my jail time, you know, it's a big time to speak about shortly, but I participated in food hunger strikes a few times, which is the typical technique that the prisoners use to improve the daily life in jail. My first hunger strike, I was 15 with 100 something kids in jail for 16 days. This was really a huge transformation to 
recognize the power that we have inside us, a spiritual power. It was not easy, obviously, not to eat 16 days, just water and salt. That's why we call it salt and water. That's very famous slogan here. Mm -hmm. In every hunger strike, we did succeed to achieve demands, which is improving the daily life in jail, bringing books, bringing hot water. And that's my first transformation from practical experience. Because I would just say this, Nina, there is no easy argument to convince people that nonviolence works. But I really believe in this from a real experience of life, from hunger strikes, not from a book I read. Of course, with the time I did read the, about the African-American struggle and, and other social justice movements in the world and history, I worked in the library of the jail and I used to read a lot. And I used to be very open-minded to listen to different voices. I felt like I grew up in jail. The choices I made is not out of weakness. Some people think we choose nonviolence out of weaknesses. That's not true. Also, I studied Hebrew. The truth is the theory was to learn your enemy's language. A long, long journey. It's not one event changed me. I have a long journey to reach a level evolving of forgiveness and love. Nonviolence are not really weaknesses, rather the opposite. And practically, what we say, there is no military solution for this conflict from either side. Israel has one of the strongest army, but as they can't crush our souls. That's not going to happen. They can kill us physically or the other way around. But for me, it became deeper as ideology, transforming this power here to nonviolence and to find shared space for both peoples that feel belonging to the same place. It's maybe... Challenging for many people, I understand, from all sides. Very challenging, including to my family, to say both people carry this narrative belonging to this land. Same stones, the same land, the same water, honestly. I think recognizing this fact is a precondition for changing the discourse here. This is going back to the roots of everything. And it took me many years to be there. I am not saying it's easy. And it's sometimes maybe easier to stay in our comfortable zone if we talk about Jewish history. For years, dreaming to go back to Jerusalem. And the same for Palestinian. My family in Jordan, they are Palestinian. That's their truth. And their soul is connected to the land where we are. Our ancestors used to say, we don't own the land. We belong to the land. That's how I grew up. Nowadays, with capitalistic system around the world, we own everything, including the land. But being in reality also means for me that I feel no threat to recognize the belonging of different communities, Palestinians and Jewish, to this land. What we do with this the question, that's a bigger conversation. Yep. And of course, it's a different way of belonging. For a Palestinian, for example, for my family, it's an ongoing being there for centuries and centuries. My family has recorded in the Ottomanic records in the 15th century. And before that, this is their only memory between Jerusalem and Jordan. That's where they lived. The phrase you just used, belong to the land. Yeah, that's our ancestors' culture. Right. Yeah. This takes away this sense of ownership mm -hmm. when you belong to the land. The land is there, you're part of it. It's a reverence yeah. for the land. Yeah. But it's a different way of looking at belonging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to recognize, Nina, it's important while we talk about this, maybe for some people it's La La Land to speak about harmony. I would also recognize the fear that people have. 
You spoke about ownership, I agree, and the fear and trauma inherited over generations in both sides in different ways, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm aware of this. As a Palestinian, I would say the fear and the trauma that Jewish people has, it does affect their treatment to the Palestinian. I'm not legitimizing anything, but I understand where the fear is coming from. And maybe the whole idea that there is not enough. Mm. So yeah, rather I prefer to share resources of this land, the water and the space and everything with whoever living here rather than a certain group of people control the place and they fear to share because of the fear that there is not enough, which is not true. Actually, I really believe there is enough resources. Yeah. A bigger question, I have friends talk about this. Is it possible that more than one group of people can belong and love and respect that stone or that mountain or that city or that place? I really believe that's possible. I don't see contradiction here. This is really hard work on a very deep level because to make any change, it really starts with one's own personal narrative, mm. right? So the question is, where does your own biography live? What is inherited? What is handed down? Mm. The connective tissue between the generations? Mm. How do we respect the ancestral story, our families? And knowing all of this, we then choose to do something that could be perceived as heresy. Mm. Yeah. Right? I'm interested in the things that we give up in order to belong and the things that we lose mm. when we leave. This tension, I don't think it's individual. It's in the personal right. and the collective. Mm -hmm. And there's no black and white. And it's not only in relationship to the conflict that you're mm -hmm. talking about. It could be in relation to understanding a family structure, a family rift, yeah. and yeah. trying to realize all the dreams that we have, that anybody has. Mm -hmm. It is actually mm -hmm. ultimately a love story mm -hmm. between the things mm -hmm. that we cherish mm -hmm. and the things that make us very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I feel this is what you're weaving and knitting together. I'm wondering how your family and the people that you grew up with in your village yeah. took to this change, transformation, and the work that you now do. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Rina. Uh, definitely all the tensions that you spoke about exist anyway. And it's not one time and you are free from tensions. Obviously, contradictions exist all the time. So let me say this. Basically, I'm not representing the mainstream, obviously which is fine for me because I think between the reality and the vision and the dreams of a different world that we're trying to create, there is a big, big space, big gap, of course. It's hard for people to imagine even, especially the one that born in the conflict under occupation system, it's hard to imagine something else. I really understand that. It needs a big imagination, a big heart, a big dreamers, maybe to imagine something beyond these walls, borders that exist here. So for me, choosing nonviolence and common shared values is not a rosy bet. I am aware of this. And it triggered many people, including my family. I can share with you personally, my nephew, 14 years old, was shot by the army two days ago in his hand with a live bullet, not even rubber bullet as they used to do sometimes, or tear gas, because there is a lot of escalation happening now. 
and doctors couldn't take the bullet because it's in a sensitive place in his hand and they will check again they can take it out or not it's not easy we are not talking about ideas just you know it's a yeah. life a lot of anger so for sure there is a lot of criticism what's called the normalization or anti-normalization what i'm talking about and some of the people that similar to me doing is called normalization with the occupation for some people they appreciate what we do so you have this and you have that i am really pleased with this actually i have to say because i'm doing personally what my heart is telling me is the right way i'm not mm. judging any other strategies other people do i try to advocate for what i believe is the way and the right thing for the future of our people i started my whole journey struggling for liberation and freedom. And this is where I am for our peoples that include the Palestinian from living as an oppressed community from the occupation and for Israelis also not to be occupiers and oppressors. I believe this is connected and I believe our freedom is really connected. We live in the same peace plan. You spoke about love story. Yes, we both love and belong to this land. No side is leaving. That's what I will say to many people that criticize us here. I do pay the price for that in public spaces here. It's not comfortable. So definitely speaking different than the group where you live. I lost some friends. Do you feel danger? No. Of course, sometimes, like during war in Gaza, there is more criticism. Two weeks ago, in Combatants for Peace, one of the organizations, I'm one of the founders, we started a program for younger generation, teen to 25 years old, called Freedom School. This was attacked by a famous Palestinian writer on social media. So the kids were scared and it's not easy. I personally don't feel threat. I feel I'm okay to pay the price mm. for mm. my beliefs. Wherever it takes, I'm not scared. I'm aware of the triggers, the challenges trying not to anger people too much, maybe meet people where they are. But definitely, it's not a supportive environment, let's say. Because of that, it's important for the people trying to make change to ally with each other. Honestly, even these circles have a lot of differences and division among each other. That's maybe harder for me than with the mainstream. Yeah, I feel compelled to ask, do your conversations and meetings ever take place with the militant factions in the Palestinian world? You can ask anything, just to say. Hamas, jihadists, do you have any contact? There is no direct conversations, to be honest. But I think, especially Combatants for Peace and maybe other groups that I'm part of, they become well-known. And it's all over social media, in Arabic, English, Hebrew, nothing hidden. Many people have access to that and see that, actually. Also, we have some supporters in Gaza. Some people communicate with us. The majority are not activists. That's not realistic to expect the majority to be activists. But the people interested in activism and politics and the conflict, they do have access to see what we do online. It's in the public. I even have some friends that are not, in our space, but they're supportive from afar. Supportive, but not necessarily activist. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people like that, actually. And of course, there's the people posing what we do. We live in a small place. Everybody knows everybody, actually. It's not too hidden. I believe transforming people is possible. This is what happened to me, to other friends. 
and it can happen to other people. This is not uh, a special thing for me and my friends. This is Nina Friedman. I am speaking with Suleiman Khatib, the co-founder of Combatants for Peace, an organization of Palestinians and Israelis working together for a future of hope on the sacred land they love. This is a story of unexpected transformations which model that possibility. You mentioned your organization, the Combatants for Peace. I understand maybe it's much larger now, but originally part of it was really the fighters, right? From both sides, potentially even people who killed people from Mm -hmm. the other side, Mm -hmm. uh, who have now decided to be committed to a peaceful coexistence. Yeah. This beautiful documentary describes your story, the stories of many of these people and the organization and the evolution of combatants yeah. for peace. Khen Alon, the other yeah. co-founder, he was the Israeli. Really? Yeah. And uh, you've even been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice, 2018-2019, which is incredible. I'd like you to talk a little bit about this organization. You already touched on your personal optimism, which is, I think, the guiding light behind you and everyone else that's in this organization. Yeah, I really feel honored that I was part of creating this movement, Combatants for Peace. It start with ex-officers, soldiers, and fighters from both sides. People like me that were in jail, or you mentioned my dear friend, Khinalon, others that were in the army, the Israeli side. But some years later, we did open the organization for people that were not in jail or army. So the organization now is open really for different people. But the DNA of the organization started from this background because this background can help us in our streets and both sides of giving credibility to what we do. Actually, this is maybe important to mention here. And as I mentioned before, we had the Freedom School for Israeli youngsters and Palestinian also, because we try to work with the younger generation as well to pass the message. On. Yes, many of us involved in violence in the past in different ways. I'm not comparing because it's a different story, but that's the proof that people have the ability to change. That's our message. There is no military solution for the conflict. We try to build bridges and we are aware of the power dynamic between the sides and realistic also. So the organization run jointly from both sides. For example, we have two directors, Palestinian Rana. She's from Bethlehem and Jonathan is from Jerusalem and now lives in Tel Aviv. They run the organization on a daily basis. Uh, we have two offices deciding things together and work together, create a lot of trust. We come from different backgrounds and different narratives. So we try to create this new narrative, if you wish, a new situation where narratives are legitimized and recognized and humanized. Because there is a lot of dehumanization in the media. It's not about us personally, really. It's about the homeland and the people here and the kids that grew up in this land. Many times people ask us, okay, what did you achieve? I think when I look back, I feel proud that we Mm. are able to mobilize thousands of thousands of people in different events we create. It's a model of hope for people when they see this cooperation happening and the peaceful joint go resistance, let's call it. We need more of that. We need more of different programs that bring our people together to bridge the divide here. 
there are other organizations, other groups doing great work also bringing our peoples together not to follow the path of either us or them. The idea of us or them is the best and it's not realistic. Our goal is really create freedom and dignity for everyone. We try as a grassroots movement to mobilize people to meet each other and also to oppose the unjust system in the place here, basically. And I have to say in the deeper sense, this is in the soul and the core. It's really to shift the consciousness here for the common good of both people that lives here in the long run. I asked you about Hamas. I didn't ask you about your contact with Israeli political leaders. Similar, the truth is we do have a few Knesset members that are in touch with us. And maybe that's helping us in our biggest event. We started Alternative Palestinian-Israeli Memorial Day to create a common event. 70 people next year, 200 people, and then around 10,000 people before Corona attending the event. Then in Corona time, the event on Zoom got around 200, 250,000 people globally. That's really, for me, the future, changing the consciousness uh, here and elsewhere, even affecting other places in the world, because the division is everywhere. We also started a few years ago to do a joint Israeli-Palestinian Akbar ceremony, the Palestinian catastrophe. Just recognizing that it really helps our people to mobilize, to open up. It's joint on both sides. We're doing it every year in May. This is a milestone. One of the organizers the Memorial Day said last time after we did the evaluation, his dream that in the future we will celebrate our national events together. Mm-hmm. I believe 100% it is possible. The common ground is big here. And I think here it's much more possible than other places because we are similar, historical-wise and language and belonging to the Middle East and so on. Of course, we're talking about long journey. Before I was talking about inner work, facing one's own personal narrative in the organization, is this conversation encouraged? A wider circle of Palestinians and Israelis in a lot of deeper work for trauma healing and looking within. This is growing during the last few years, I would say. And this is really promising. A lot of this work is really underground, which is fine. That's how revolutions work. In classic activism, we will go to demonstrations. I think really important to ask ourselves what's our intention, why we are doing what we are doing. The personal models here is important because we all have our mistakes and problems. And I think the deeper changes happening really in this quiet underground world, which is not well known in the public and the media. I see a lot of transformation happening there, using yeah. ancient wisdom and spiritual work. Why do you use the word revolution instead of evolution? Because I actually connected with the term since my childhood. My last birthday, a friend of mine has given me this present that says every rose has its revolution in Arabic. The petal yeah. and the thorn. Right. So I'm somehow connected to that. Yeah. It carries a lot of weight, this choice of words. Yeah, you know, we live in a very harsh corner for the sake of the values that we are talking about. It's also important to stay in touch with the reality while dreaming of different worlds. And I'm really fully aware of the reality, what's happening on the ground, and keep dreaming and envisioning a new reality. Mm It's important to be balanced a bit on that, yeah. It draws up the imagination to other 
somebody else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I see that. It's not easy to include people that we don't agree with. This is the balance between reality right now, where we are, and the world we're creating, which is not going to happen in one minute. It's a journey. And one thing I learned from our culture, which exists in other cultures, what we're doing is really not just for our generation. It's not necessarily for our lifetime. Suli, we're going to close soon. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you yourself feel that you want to speak about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, thank you, Nina, for this opportunity to maybe touch heart of some people. I don't really believe in logic so much and mind. I really believe in heart-to-heart language. And I feel privileged, only feel responsibility, actually, mm. to bear in my own ways, from my own heart, the message of many people that don't have this opportunity. So this is really appreciated, and I hope this can support journeys of others of opening towards what we call the other. You mentioned othering. Mm-hmm. And I want to close by something I learned when I was a child and then in jail from a famous Islamic school, the cousin of Muhammad. We learn from his books, Nonviolence and Wisdom, and how to turn the other into a brother and to turn your enemy into a friend. This is the struggle, I mean, across the world, actually, seeing what's happening right now. And, Ukraine, Russia, Europe, the world is tense. And locally, we need a lot of wisdom and a lot of empathy and mercy for ourselves and for other people. And this is really something I learned a lot from my tribal system called Sulha, reconciliation. My family still practice this principle that exists even during Abrahamic time across Middle East. I believe for the Abrahamic family as a whole and the spiritual people and the non-believers, this is something deeply important to bring to the table, to the conversation. It can really provide a platform of a real deep heart-to-heart reconciliation than the typical political negotiation. I just want to offer this because my family still practice this to help the peaceful coexistence among even our tribes and families, you know. Yeah. It's my hope to use yeah. the local culture into the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I really feel what you're saying. It's very, very beautiful. You know, the word brother and other, it's two letters. Mm. Yeah. We talk about language. And when you were talking about sulha, which is a word that I never heard, it sounded to me like the Hebrew word slicha. The slicha, the sluch. It's the same roots. Yeah, Yeah. same same roots in Arabic and Hebrew, the same. That's actually what drawn me to this beautiful old culture. Hebrew, Arabic is very connected. I speak Hebrew very well from jail time. Uh, many terms, like the old Arabic and old Hebrew, are so rooted and similar. There is under, this word, yeah. what you call reconciliation. The reconciliation begins with yeah. forgiveness, the slicha. Yeah, yeah, slicha, yeah, the same. Yeah. You see, when uh, you guys connect with the history, and we do too, we could meet there. I want to say to our listeners that they'll be able to get a lot more information about some of the things that we've spoken about on the Combatants for Peace website, watching the documentary called Disturbing the Peace, and also this beautiful book that I mentioned, In This Place, Together. I highly recommend both the documentary and the book, both very beautiful. And all these links will be included on the podcast wearing website. Suli, thank you very much for your time today. I'm very, very happy that we met. 
Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Dear listeners, thank you for being here. I invite you to reflect on what you've heard today and send your thoughts or stories. We would love to hear from you. Stay in touch on Instagram or on our website, thewearing.com. Subscribe free to Wearing wherever you get your podcasts so that you are alerted when the next episode airs. Wearing is a pro bono initiative of Dreamland Creative Projects which provides design for the places where we live, heal, age, and inspire. Visit dreamlandcreativeprojects.com or email me, nina at dreamlandcreativeprojects.com. Until we meet again, goodbye from Waring.